0: Uh, if you would open your Bibles to uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 32. We're just flying through, just flying through, right? <laughs> Mark 10, 32. Um, in our world today, leadership has a lot of different faces and a lot of different styles. Uh, in some places, someone will say leadership uh, looks like the person with the best sound bites, Right? Or or leadership can be the person with the most followers, particularly on social media. That person is called an influencer, okay? Or leadership uh, could be, uh, it might seem like the person, whomever is the most commanding, right? Or whoever looks best with the shirt off, riding a horse or something like that, right? (laughs) The person who is the loudest, the person who is the most charismatic, or the person who is seen as the most important. <coughs> I was talking with a friend this past week uh, about sort of the leadership culture within uh, a company, Home Depot. There was an exchange of CEOs, and the incoming CEO observed uh, sort of how, how backwards things were in the leadership structure. This is how it manifested itself. Uh, the new incoming CEO got into the elevator and notice that while they got on the elevator with others that worked in the company in this multi-floor uh, building, that there was an executive button on the elevator whereby you could just shoot straight to the top, bypassing all the stops along the way. So if you were one of the 10 or 12 people that happened to get on this elevator with the executive, you were a hostage until they got to where they were going. And then you had to return to your peon floors below them. Once upon a time, that was the leadership structure and the incoming CEO changed things around. And that's kind of what we find in our uh, story here uh, with Jesus here in Mark 10. We find that the upside down kingdom of God, once again, things are inverted. That true leadership is not like this hierarchical pyramid that I just talked about in this uh, old business model. But in fact, Jesus turns it on its head and he shows that the true leader, the great leader, must be the servant of all. And so again, Jesus just inverts. He consistently inverts many of the disciples' value systems and understandings of things. The truly great leader is the servant of all. And so that's our bullet this morning. So if you're looking for the cliffs notes and you need to get home to something, you can go now. I'm just kidding, you can't go. You're a hostage for this situation right now. Service is the way of true disciples. Service is the way of true disciples. Chapter 10, verse 32. <clears throat> they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. We're going to stop right there. That sentence is absolutely loaded. There is so much going on there questions you should be asking uh, that we need to just kind of dig into this a little bit. first of all, we see that Jesus turns toward Jerusalem. This is the first time in Mark's Gospel that he has mentioned Jesus in or heading to Jerusalem. Uh, he's been there before the other gospels chronicle that in fact The Gospel of John is even arranged around what we call the festival cycles, showing three different trips of Jesus uh, to Jerusalem. I don't know why I did it with two hands, but that's what I did. (laughs) And so that's kind of how it was arranged. But this is Mark's first time mentioning it here. Uh, And I think he does that uh, by way of heightening the drama. Up to this point, we have just seen some of the leaders from Jerusalem or from the surrounding areas coming out to Jesus to his Galilean ministry. But now we see him turn toward Jerusalem. Also, the text has this little detail which you might not find interesting, but as I've said, you're a hostage for my sermon. So it says that they head up to Jerusalem. Now you might be thinking, well, as I look on the map, Galilee is in the north and Jerusalem's in the south. So Jerusalem is down, right? Right? No, of course, we mean elevation. Uh, Galilee is a low-level area. In fact, the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. And so when they're heading to Jerusalem, they head up. They're going up to about 1,200 feet or so of elevation and have to go over a mountain pass before they get there on the, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. So they're headed up. And this is kind of, it just reminds me of something, you know, you... The, the sort of pilgrims that would be, uh, Jewish pilgrims that be headed to Passover or to one of the religious festivals, uh, they had a whole genre of music that they would sing together on these journeys to Jerusalem and they're called Psalms of Ascent. And they frequently have this upward in it or this lifting my eyes kind of bit to it. Uh, I have a whole genre of music on my Spotify playlist for when I'm going fly fishing. <laughs> And it just sets the mood for me. So they're a little more noble. Uh, They've got a playlist, so to speak, for when they're heading to Passover, when they're going to the temple together. And one of these Psalms of Ascent that you might recognize is Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You can imagine a community of travelers going to worship, singing this for one another. And so the people are on their way to Jerusalem, presumably for Passover, to celebrate Passover, which is just a few weeks away. And, uh, and on this particular journey, we're given the interesting note that Jesus is out front. He's leading the way. And that's notable because now we've seen in, in Jesus this sort of this new kind of intensity, this position out front. This is unusual for him. If you think about it, most of the time when we find Jesus, we find him in the middle of a crowd, right? Or we find him getting away from the crowd, seeking privacy so he could instruct his disciples. Uh, Or sometimes his disciples have left before him and he comes along after. Uh, In other words, Jesus never seems to be in a hurry. He never seems to be out front, he never seems to be moving with a ton of urgency. He's not coming in hot, right, to situations. He seems to be deliberately patient, uh, calm, and casual. But here in Mark, he is coming in hot now. He is out in front. Uh, in fact, when we take, look at this same incident from the Gospel of Luke's perspective in chapter 9, verse 51, It says this in the ESV. It says, he set his face toward Jerusalem. He was set. The NIV says, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In other words, this is a man on a mission. And it's notable. The gospel writers capture this. That's what we're meant to pick up here. And that's the same vibe that the disciples, the 12, and the followers along behind are noticing. So it's not an insignificant detail that it tells us he's out in front or that he's resolute, his face set, uh, because it helps us to understand the emotions that are created, because it generates the fact that he is leading them to Jerusalem, generates a whole range of differing emotions from his followers. Uh, And so that's our next point. There's a mixed crowd and there's mixed feelings. We're told that the 12, or the 12 disciples here, are astonished. And then we're told that the general crowd of Jewish pilgrims headed for Jerusalem for Passover are afraid. Those are maybe strange words. Why why would the 12 be astonished? Why would these other general pilgrims heading to Jerusalem be afraid? What are they fearful of? Well, here's the answer. By all appearances, the crowd and the 12 disciples anticipate a conflict. They anticipate a fight. This, to them, this looks like showdown at the O.K. Corral. So you can imagine, I mean, it looks like Jesus is about to disturb the peace. That's the feeling. So the disciples, we can sort of put, the, put ourselves in their conversation. We can kind of do this imaginatively. You can imagine them saying to one another, dude, it's go time. It's gonna happen right now. This is the moment of truth, the reckoning that we've been waiting for. Messiah has come. Now he's coming to Jerusalem and he is going to take over. This is it. You can imagine the crowd of Jewish pilgrims just headed for Passover thinking, this is so scary. Uh, I had a nice VRBO, all booked. I was looking for a pleasant, relaxing time. And now it appears I'm coming in with a mob. What is about to happen? I'm not sure we want to be in town when this messianic confrontation goes down. So this is sort of what's happening here. A number of years ago, I got a phone call from a brother here um, in the church who asked me, hey, you want to go to lunch? which is an easy yes. I sure do, especially if you're buying. That's great. So we went to lunch, and we talked about a number of things, and one of the conversations that came out there was uh, this man told me that um, his daughter was being harassed at the restaurant where she was employed. So I was listening to this, and, um, and then he said, I need to go and address this situation. He says, I was wondering if you might be willing to go with me And I said, kind of in the hypothetical realm, sure, yeah, I'll do that. And then he says, "Um, can we take your truck? I was like, oh, you mean right now? (laughs) Like we're going now, yeah. Okay, why don't you wanna take your truck? He said, well, I don't want to go with the company logo on it. Okay, all right. So we go in my truck and we go to the place and it was still kind of cold and this man gets out of The truck, and then he takes off his jacket because, again, his name and the company logo on the back, and he leaves it in the truck. And and all of this time, I'm thinking, wow, this is really heightening quickly. (laughs) You know, this is escalating to a place I wasn't totally anticipating here. And then we go into the restaurant, and this father, with righteous indignation, finds the manager and says, I need to talk to so and so employee because this is what he's doing, and we're here to tell him it's going to stop. So the manager then looks over at me and I realize, oh, I see my role here. I'm the muscle. <laughs> you guys laughed even louder than first service. I don't know why you're laughing. But I, I'm, I am starting to think, wow, I, I have never been a fellow's wingman in a bar fight before. That is, I've never done that one. I don't have any pastoral training for that whatsoever. No seminary training. And I was thinking, what do I got here? What do I got? I got Karate Kid. I've got uh, Strike First, Strike Hard, No Mercy, Sir, right? That's the extent of my training for what feels like is about to go down. The manager then says, yeah, you can have that conversation, but you guys are going to have it outside. And I just keep, like, every step is like, this is going to happen. I can't believe it. So we go outside. And again, I watched... An upset father with righteous indignation, with advocacy for his daughter, compose himself, control, and direct his anger precisely and effectively. And the man said, yeah, it's gonna stop. And we got back in the truck and drove away. So the moral of that story is add wingmen to, my, to a potential bar fight, to my pastoral duties around here, right? <laughs> I bring that up because... I, as I'm thinking about sort of the mindset of the followers here and of the disciples, that's the sense that they're having. Whoa, it's go time. This could get ugly and we're going with Jesus to this conflict. This is gonna happen here. And so Jesus just kind of sensing the uneasy emotion of his disciples and sort of what's going on here. He knows that his guys need to be instructed. They need to be coached up on what's not going to happen and what is about to happen. Again, they're under the impression that they're headed to a battle where they may even have to take some lives. But in reality, there is a battle. It's going to be won by Jesus, but it's going to be won by him laying down his life, the inversion of things. And so what we find here is Jesus then gives his third Passion, prediction, his third. Remember the first, he got rebuked by Peter. That's not gonna happen. The second one, the disciples were just like, huh, we don't get this, and remained silent. Probably the best thing they did. Now he's gotta give it to them again. So here we go. Again, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Again, this is the third time he is given this passion uh, prediction. And this time he gives another detail that we haven't seen previously. He talks about how he'll be handed over particularly to the Gentiles. And this is notable because The Jewish leaders are basically going to declare him guilty, but since they don't have the right to execute him, they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles to do their dirty work, which is precisely what unfolds. But overall, the impression that's conveyed here is that Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to throw down. He is going to Jerusalem to lay down his life for you and for me and for sinners everywhere. The great servant king, the servant king. Secondly here, disciples, they still don't understand. They still, still don't understand the mission of Jesus. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Doesn't that sound like a teenager? Just do everything I want for me, mom and dad. That's why you're here. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, first, when we run into this, it seems like, should this be right here? Does this passage actually belong at this part of the narrative? This seems out of place. It doesn't seem related at all to anything going on prior. But if we think about it just a little bit, we can see why they would say this. Once again, they think they're going into Jerusalem. They think this is the time that the Messiah is going to establish his kingdom, right? So the kingdom of God, in their view, is coming by force. It's coming by might, and it's coming right now. The expectation, they're gonna take out the Romans, displace them from Jerusalem, that Messiah, that Jesus is going to ascend David's throne, and he's going to reign as Israel's long-awaited king. That's what they're expecting. And so that's the mindset of James and John, And that's why they ask this question. They're basically saying, once you set up your kingdom, we'd like to be a part of your cabinet. We want these places. There's a phrase here that I think is a little bit misleading. It says, when you come in your glory, right? And it's important to remember that at this moment in time, they don't have all of the revelation that we have. We have the book of revelation. We have this picture of the end and eternal glory of Jesus on his throne, right? So we have a bigger picture when we see glory. That's what we're in view. When they're using this phrase, they're just talking about once you settle this local skirmish and you take up your rightful seat on the throne, we'd like to be a part of your cabinet. So they're looking at a lower level sort of uh, request here in their mind. And so they don't know how flawed their request is. They're thinking, we just want these seats. And Jesus, is like you, his answer, you don't know what you're asking. To sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, I'll tell you, James and John are funny characters to me. You know, Peter, we, we give a hard time, uh, rightfully so, uh, a lot. He is the guy that's definitely reckless with his mouth, right? But James and John are just reckless generally. Their, their nickname, they here they're called the sons of Zebedee, but their nickname, you know what? Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Again, in Luke's gospel, when he tells this particular story, this same trip to Jerusalem, there's an account where some Samaritans don't receive Jesus and the followers, don't offer him hospitality, and James and John are ticked off, right? And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and like melt these guys? That is a hilarious request when you think about it. These people aren't spiritual at all. Should we melt them? (laughs) Do do you know what I mean? And they're asking Jesus. Think of the powers that, I mean, it's just comical to me. And so what we understand here is these guys are hotheads and they're amped up. They're amped up. So they anticipate conflict, they are expecting Christ's immediate kingly rule. And they are also ambitious for personal power. Well, maybe let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's think about this for a moment. Maybe, maybe asking for these seats, this isn't all about personal ambition. Maybe they just really want to be Jesus wing men. They just want to defend him and protect him and make sure that nothing bad comes to him. So maybe that's all that's behind it, right? What do you think? Well, if we look at the text, I think it gives us a hint that no, that's not the case because we see the response of the other disciples. What do they say? Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. We learned last week, this word is like shaking mad. They know what these guys are up to. This is once again, another example of their self-seeking. And I wanna tap into this for just a moment here in terms of uh, application or sort of contemporary relevance uh, for you and I as Christians today. Because I think that the church today can really identify with the emotions of James and John, the sons of thunder, right? I think along with them, we feel like, well, we're pretty frustrated. We're pretty angry at the disrespect that the world is showing towards Jesus. Jesus and towards his disciples, and towards his church. And I think many in the evangelical church today want to sort of take up the fight, spoiling for a fight, wanting to be men and women of action, eager to score victories for Jesus as the sons of thunder were. I think in our heart of hearts, for many, they just want to call down fire from heaven and melt these people who are opposed to Jesus. And we can find ourselves there. This passage teaches us that ambition and self-seeking, seizing positions of power and influence, shows of strength and might and anger, this is not the method that Christ has given to us to change the world. It wasn't his mission and it's not our mission. Instead, Jesus takes a much more difficult road and it's the same road that he asks of us. It is the road of sacrifice and service and of witness. Church history will bear this out. The church has always been at its worst when it is pressing its cause by might, by force, by strength. It has always been at its best when it was humble and lowly and in service to the world. We think about the first coming of Jesus, and I I think the role that we need to think about ourselves in is this. We always need to think about ourselves as his disciples, as echoes of Jesus, of not only what he proclaimed, but the manner in which he proclaimed it. The echo shouldn't sound or look different. In the first coming of Jesus, again, he came humbly. He came lowly. He came as a servant. He came offering himself as a sacrifice. He came announcing the good news of the coming kingdom of God. And that is what his disciples are to be doing now, echoes of Christ's first coming, acting humbly, lowly as servants, sacrificially serving and loving our neighbors, earning opportunities to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. The other thing to remember is this, there will be a second coming of Jesus and it will be very different than the first. The second coming of Christ, Jesus will come with power. He doesn't come in as the lion, he comes in as the lamb, or excuse me, as the lion. He He does not come in as the lamb, he comes in as the lion. And we're told that we come with him. And in fact, somehow join him treading upon his enemies. We're also told that we will rule and reign victorious with him. That's his second coming. But we're not there yet. We're to be echoes of his first coming. Our job now is to be witnesses of Christ and of his suffering and sacrifice and to match his message even with the way we comport ourselves. So Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And the disciples respond amazingly, We can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But the sitter of my right and my left is not for me to grant. When we think about Christ's cup or Christ's baptism, essentially what Jesus is saying is, as it goes with me, so it will go with you. The true disciple of Jesus is not gonna experience a quantitatively different kind of life. His cup is sacrifice. His baptism is suffering. And we will experience that. Jesus said as much, even last week. Remember when Peter, sort of cheeky Peter, once again, oh Jesus, we've left everything to follow you, right? And Jesus responds to this. And he says, truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. Yes, discipleship is the best way to follow Jesus and to be reintroduced to the humanity that he has for us. And yet it comes with suffering and loss and persecution. Jesus promised this. We will drink this cup and we will be baptized with his baptism. And then as we go on here, Jesus called them together. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that last passage, the key to the whole book, the key to the whole book of Mark, the key passage, that even Jesus, the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And so the disciples learn, and we along with them, That service and sacrifice is the way of Jesus. It's our way too. And we're reminded that Christ gave his life as a ransom. This word ransom, very interesting. There's a lot of ink spilt about this, a lot of discussion and debate about what's happening here in this ransom. But in a nutshell, very simply, it simply means this. Jesus paid your debt and he paid mine. And he didn't pay it because we were good looking, mostly righteous, moralistic, really keys to his kingdom coming into fruition. He just frankly did it because we were guilty and we needed it. I was reading a book by um, Jackie Hill Perry here a while back and she had a great line in this book that really just stood up off the page for me and kind of hit me afresh with the radical nature of the gospel. It said this, Jesus had the guilty in mind when he was hung high and stretched out wide. He had the guilty in mind. Not the pretty good, not the moralistic, not those who almost can get there on their, their own steam. It was the guilty. And I just think, do we have that heart for others? When I see someone who's a mess you know, their language is a mess, their life is a mess, they don't love the Lord, they're hostile, all these kinds of things. Do I look about them and say, you know, Jesus died for them? Or do they just kind of repulse me? We need to have Jesus' heart. We need to echo not only his words, but his manner to serve and to sacrifice and proclaim the goodness of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the radical nature of the gospel would just hit us afresh. We did not deserve what you did. I think of the words of Jerry Bridges, everything this side of hell is grace. That's what we deserved. But by your love and mercy, you had the guilty in mind. You had us in mind. Sending your son by going to the cross for us, Jesus, for dying in our place, you ransomed us. You paid the price we deserve to pay. Lord, I pray that we who call ourselves your disciples would carry not only your message, but we would carry it in the manner in which you did, with humility, with service, with sacrifice, that ours would not be a gospel of power or triumph, but a gospel of our God who gave himself for us. Help us, Lord, to match the manner in which Jesus spoke these things. We pray in his name, amen.